grab our Bibles, we're in Revelation chapter 13. Today we're going to finish up this chapter. We're looking at verses 15 through 18 in a difficult text, in fact. So when you, when you find that, let's go ahead and stand up together. We believe here at Gospel Fellowship that God's Word is inspired. It's inerrant. It's the infallible Word of the only true and living God. So we receive it as such. Listen now to the Word of the living God, Revelation 13, verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even, ca- might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. This is the first time I've ever preached on this text in my life. I've never preached on the mark of the beast before, and there's a couple reasons I've been a little bit shy to do that. The first is the stereotypes related to apocalyptic preachers. I've never wanted to be that guy um, who's got the cardboard sign, the end is near. I've never wanted to be that guy who wears that sandwich board, you know, downtown in the streets or something like that. But that in itself, stereotypes about these kinds of passages, is not a good justification to avoid preaching them. As a matter of fact, the world probably needs a few more uh, cardboard sign prophets on the streets these days, even as things take a strange and unusual turn in our own times. We may need a little bit more of that, and so I'm going to set stereotypes aside today. I've also been a little nervous about preaching this text, too, on the Mark of the Beast, because of the wild interpretations that have been posited by a number of preachers in previous generations. As you're probably already aware, the number 666 has been interpreted in various ways throughout the ages. We've heard of tattoo marks, we've heard of uh, digital signs, we've heard of uh, all, all kinds of technological possibilities. Maybe it's artificial intelligence. Maybe it's a microchip they're going to put in your neck. Maybe it's the new DEI standards for diversity and inclusivity, equity. All these. We have all of these wild speculations. And to be honest, I've not really wanted to be a part of that kind of speculation regarding this text. And moreover, maybe it's a little bit of insecurity on my own part, if I'm completely transparent with you, that I like to, and I think most pastors do, to have a sense of the command of the material that I'm preaching. I want to be able to be seen as competent in the things that I'm explaining. And so if there are questions that come up that I can't answer, I have to admit to you that makes me a little bit gun-shy to want to take on texts that I might not know the answers to. And so that being said, um, none of those reasons, I think, are sufficient then for me to dodge preaching on a text which is obviously quite difficult and interpretations vary. In fact, this is probably one of the strengths of the, of the, for the reasons why we do expository preaching here at Gospel Fellowship. Because when you're working through books of the Bible consistently, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you can't avoid the difficult passages. You have to confront them whether you're ready to take them on or not. And so here we go 
we're doing the mark of the beast today. Not only that, but that also avoids the preacher of constantly focusing on his hobby horse pet text that he loves to preach on while skipping over those that may be less comfortable. And so we're going to work on this text, and I'm going to do the best that I can do with this. And I ask you to pray for me even as I preach to you this morning as we get into this. So no text, no matter how difficult or hard it should be, should ever be preached without its context. No preaching of the text without the context. So let's just do a little work right at the beginning to remember where we're at in the book of Revelation. In chapters 12 and 13, John, the apocalyptic writer, he's given to us something of an unholy trinity, as we've mentioned in previous sermons, wherein John has one by one introduced us to this dragon who the Bible very clearly tells us is Satan or the devil. So he's somewhat asymmetrically corresponding to the Father in all of his glory and power and righteousness, the equal, not equal, but certainly an opposite of the Father in that sense. And then, then we looked at, secondly, this beast that rises out of the sea. Again, it's an asymmetrical comparison to Christ and his kingly glory. And we looked at the fact that uh, borrowing from Daniel chapter 7, the beast very much looks like authoritarian, tyrannical, dictatorial government. In fact, there's very strong themes that correspond that would make us to think that's exactly what's happening with the sea beast. And then more recently, we see this other beast that rises out of the land. And Revelation will later call this land beast the false prophet. And David, I thought, did a very good job of drawing a comparison between the prophets of the Old Testament and what this wicked a false prophet does, and again, asymmetrically corresponding then to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so now, in our context today, let's not lose the context here, what John is talking about is a, a form of idolatry in which this false prophet brings about in some way this, in verse 15, look at this, the image of the beast. He sets up this image of the beast, and it even appears to speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, listen, the moment we start talking about worshiping images, okay, two synapses in our brain should start firing. The first synapse in our brain that might fire should probably be a drawing a connection between Daniel 3, which we just read, and this text here. Because in Daniel chapter 3, you have in the Old Testament the ultimate idol, 90 feet of gold set up by Nebuchadnezzar for the people to worship. And notice that the people of power, they do bow down and they worship it. The governors and the prefects and the satraps and whoever else is mentioned there. There's a pretty clear connection there between false worship and the worshiping of images or idols. And so that should be firing in our brain a connection to Daniel chapter 3, and yet also probably should be going off a warning sign in our mind because the Bible, listen, is very clear, very clear, and all of the Old Testament and much of the New, that Christian believers do not worship by means of images. That's just clear. It's unambiguous. It's emphatic. It should be stark, clear. The second commandment tells us that we do not worship the true and living God by means of images, nor do we worship any other form of idolatry at all whatsoever. End of story. So that should be pretty clear for us as the context of this passage. Now, what I want to do this morning is simply this. I'm going to go directly to the hardest verse in this text, which is obviously verse 18. It's the mark of the beast. 
And you know it as well as I do that the mark of the beast is described as this number here, 666. So how are we going to approach this? Well, I've thought about this quite a bit this week. And this is what I've decided to do in the sermon this morning. The first part of the sermon, I am going to put on the hats of the biblical scholar. And I'm going to try to deduce anything that we can discern about uh, biblical markings in general and this particular marking in specific. What in the world does this number 666 mean? So for the first part of the sermon, I'm going to be doing the biblical work of scholastic endeavor, trying to dig into anything we can discern that's meaningful about this number 666. Then, and you'll notice the change, I'm going to take off the scholar's hat and I'm going to put on my sandwich board of the street uh, warning prophets and I'm going to do my role of fulfilling that duty of the fiery preacher. Okay, so that's what I'm going to do for you this morning. So scholarly endeavor first, fiery preaching to come. Be ready for it when we get there. So with all Bibles open, let's look at verse 16 here. Notice it says it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Okay, so that's pretty alarming here. So what do we know about this theology of biblical markings? Well, let's start with etymology. That's the science of looking at the meaning or the root meaning of a particular word. So where does the word derive from? We have here this word mark. In the Greek, it's the word karagma. Starts with an X, karagma. Well, that word only appears nine times in the New Testament, and eight of them are right here in context. So we don't have a lot to look for throughout the rest of the New Testament. We do have one other place where the, the word karagma comes up. It's in Acts 17:29. I'm not going to go there this morning, but I do want you to know about it. In context, there, not surprisingly, the word karagma has to do with an image or a false idol that is being worshipped. Again, that text is Acts. 1729. So the word karagma, very often in the ancient world, it took on the connotation of an impression that symbolized another power. So most commonly that would be in coinage. So we have that still today, and they did in the ancient world, that a emperor or a ruler or a president would have their image impressed upon by way of metal into a coin or some other symbol. And so that is often what is meant by the word karagma. Now, Interestingly enough, if we go to the root word karax, from whence karagma is derived, it actually means a sharp stake or a sharp stick. Now that's interesting because a sharp stake or a sharp stick would often place a mark on an object, kind of a rough, almost a violent mark, like a sharp stick might be able to scrape something into the side of an animal or a hide or even a person. And so that is very interesting because a karagma could very often be in the ancient world also a branding mark that would be placed on an animal or on a slave. And so ancient readers here might have thought about a branding, for instance, as you would put on cattle or a horse or even a slave. Slavery was rampant, of course, as you know, in the ancient world. And so this mark is sort of a violent word. It, it often does correspond to something of a violent or a painful mark. A brand on your skin would be incredibly painful. Very interestingly, also, a karagma, now this may feature here prominently, is what you would describe if you were bit by an animal, like a snake, and there was a bite mark on your arm. So if you got bit by a dog or a snake or something, you would describe that as the karagma of the animal. Now that fits in rather nicely because 
we've already seen that Satan is described as something like a dragon. And so one of the images that may be conjured up is something like the bite mark of a dragon. Okay, so that's a possibility here. Now, thinking about a biblical theology of markings, this is not the first time in the book of Revelation that we've seen people being marked as belonging to another. Now, the previous reference, though, was a good reference, and I'm thinking back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, and Revelation 9, verse 4, where believers are described as being marked, but not the same word, karagma. It's a different word for believers. We have rather been sealed by the goodness of the purposes of God. And I remember back when we did those texts in Revelation 7 and 9, I told you that my best, uh, my best understanding was that the sealing of God was probably either baptism or the Holy Spirit sealing us himself because the New Testament does refer to the Holy Spirit as sealing believers. And so John here, notice, uses two different words. The sealing of believers is not the same word as the karagma of the evil one, that scuff or that mark or that brand that he puts upon his people. The word seal has to do with sealing a document. Again, it's an official imprimatur, so there's a similar denotation of marking as property, but the connotation is very different between a seal, which is careful and intentional, and, 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 and even loving, we might say, versus this rough-hewn, almost violent, karagma mark of the evil one. So that's, I think, uh, something we might see, even in just the etymology of the word, karax or karagma. Now, Again, looking to our Old Testaments, there is a biblical theology of being marked that is, that is present in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you three texts. I want you to write these down. We're only going to have time to look at one of them. Okay, So the two that we're going to look at on your own time would be Exodus 13.9 and Isaiah 44.5. Again, Exodus 13.9 and Isaiah 44.5. Look those up later on your own. We are, however, going to turn right now to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8 where we may have sort of the, the original concept of biblical theology of marking. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Please flip with me there. You're going to notice here that this is a very familiar passage in the Old Testament, one that's even loved and very much cherished by us as believers. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your might." And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Notice, we're talking about heart language here, very clearly. Who do you love? You love the Lord God. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve the Lord. Why are you going to serve him? Because you love him in the heart. Okay? Now stay with me here. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now notice here in verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That's to say, on your forehead, right? You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so here, what is being marked of the believer, very specifically here, is the hands and the forehead, or the, the frontlets between your eyes. Now, why does the Bible stress that believers should have their hands and their heads marked by the law of God? Well, obviously because the heart belongs to God. The head is the locus of where you think. The head is, is the realm of the mental. The head is where the reason is. The head is where consciousness is. And so to be marked on the head 
with the love of God is to say something like, like you ought to think very Christianly in your life. Okay? Your mind, your mental life, your consciousness should be deeply imbued with the love of God and the service of the same. And why then should your hand be marked? Because your hand is where you carry out activity. Okay? Your hand is where you do things. Your, ha- your hand is where you work. Your hand is where you serve. And so for the hand and the head to be demarcated by the law of God, symbolizing for us the love of God, that is just another way of saying that you are to be holy and truly the possession of your Lord, loving Him and serving Him all of your days. Now, no Hebrew, I don't think, would read this text in Deuteronomy 6.8 and then immediately book an appointment at the tattoo parlor because they're going to go get a Bible verse tattooed on their hand or their head. That's not the idea. Okay, we could talk about tattoos another day. My point there is, though, I don't think that this is necessarily a literal sort of physical marking on the body. Okay, I don't think that's what's happening here at all. In fact, I think what Deuteronomy 6.8 is telling us is something of the heart. In fact... Uh, there were some who would take that kind of marking all too literally, and believe it or not, they devised a little box that they would sometimes wear on their physical person, on their wrist, or on their head. It was called a phylactery, and very often, at least in the New Testament times, you would, you would write a little scripture on a piece of paper, and you'd put it in this little box on your wrist or on your forehead, this phylactery. It's that very over-literalization of this text that Jesus condemns in Matthew 23 Uh, chapter 23, verse 5. So the point here is not necessarily a physical, visible demarcation on the person, but rather this speaks really specifically to the deepest, remote, uh, and profound places of the heart. Who do you love? That's the question. Okay. So I think all of this is in view here in our, our theology of biblical markings. So take that for what it's worth. And now let's get a little bit more specific here. Let's go back to our text in Revelation chapter 13. And we want to now get into the mystery of this number, 666. So we find this in verse 18. Look at this. And and John tells us, now this calls for wisdom. Okay, so think, think. Let the one who has uh, has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, this has puzzled Christians for generations, and you may come away just as puzzled, uh, perhaps, as you were before you came into the service today. And I'll do my best to, to clarify as much as I can about this, but this is a difficult text. So let's at least consider three different possibilities for how we might rightly interpret this. I'm going to give you three main ways that we can look at this. The first... And I think we would be crazy not to consider the possibility that this might be another allusion to the Old Testament. Okay, Why do I say that we would be crazy not to consider that? Well, because for most of our study of the book of Revelation, it's been going back to John's source text from the Old Testament that have opened the door to our key to interpreting this book. Right? I mean, how many times in 13 chapters... Have we come up on a mystery in the book of Revelation and we, it's dawned on us, no, wait a second, John is actually taking something from the Old Testament, maybe Daniel or a portion of the Pentateuch, and he's reappropriating it in, in gospelized depictions and all of a sudden the meaning of the text becomes plain to us. Well, we should at least consider the possibility that this is a direct reference to an Old Testament text. Now, I've done the homework for you and I'll tell you that if you look up the number 666 in the Old Testament, 
there are only three places that this number comes up. Two of them are essentially the same, so we're going to call that actually one reference. The other one is a little bit unusual, but I don't think helps us much. So here are the Old Testament references. You can write these down too. The number comes up in Ezra chapter 2, verse 13. But what's unhelpful about Ezra 2.13 is it just is a list of names and numbers. It's one of those genealogical numbering lists in which we're talking about the numbers of the families that came back after the exile. And we're told that there's a certain family head called Adonikim whose people numbered 666. Now that's not very helpful to me because Adonikim, whoever he is, is obviously not a central figure in the Old Testament his name really only comes up in these kinds of lists. So I don't think that's the clue that we're looking for. Now, the other two references, they come up in these texts, 1 Kings 10.14 and 2 Chronicles 9.13. Again, that's 1 Kings 10.14 and 2 Chronicles 9.13. And in this case, I think these passages are very similar. We're talking about the amount of gold that Solomon had as his revenue as a king during the peak of Israel's national glory. So while Solomon was the king, Israel had great peace, uh, they had great prosperity, the nation was not yet divided, and we're told there that Solomon had 666 talents of gold, that's a lot of money by the way, as his revenue for the nation. Now you can look up more of the context of that in your own time. I will simply tell you that if that's helpful at all, maybe it tells us something about the corroding and corrosive effects of money on our lives. Okay, that's a possibility. But again, unfortunately, I don't think that's probably what John is referring to. I just think it happens to be that that number is the same as the number here described in Revelation 13. And so I'm going to set Old Testament illusion aside and consider another possibility that may be totally new to you or perhaps maybe not. There is a process in the ancient world um, called gematria. That's G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A, gematria. What in the world is that? Gematria in the ancient world is a process by which you take the letters of an alphabet and you give them a numerical correspondence so that each letter stands for a number. So if we were going to make a gematria in English, it'd be like A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and then when you run out of the single digits, then you go to the 10. So you go, then you go 10, 20, 30, like J, K, L, M. And then when you run out of the, the uh, two-digit numbers, you go to the three-digit numbers. So eventually you'd have 100 and 200 and 300. Now, this was done in the ancient worlds. Okay? This was a thing that they did, gematria. And so it is very possible that John is using gematria to give us sort of a coded uh, equivalent for a name. And so if this is the case, then maybe we could take the Greek or the Hebrew, assign alphanumeric equivalent to it, and come up with a name that is behind this number 666. In favor of this interpretation, okay, in favor of this, I want you to look down at your Bible real carefully here and notice in verse 18 that it says, one who has understanding calculates the number of the beast. Calculate it. Do the math, he says. The word calculate is an ancient word that simply meant like as in to count pebbles, like you might do on an abacus, okay, if you're familiar with that. So there's a possibility here that John is giving us some gematria to give us a coded name. Now, here's the breakthrough that those who hold this theory 
have found that if you take the number 666, you can come up with the name Nero Caesar using those numbers. Okay, So the gematria number for the name Nero Caesar is 666. Now that could be the breakthrough that we're looking for. That might actually help us to know when the book of Revelation was written. If it was written in a pre-70 AD context rather than a mid-90s context, this may be an explosive revelation for us to think about today because here, after all, John has been telling us throughout this entire chapter that we're to be warned about evil, pagan, tyrannical governments over which Nero was obviously the lord and emperor. Okay? Nero was a persecutorial uh, evil emperor who did very much delight in the killing of Christians. And so this could very much be exactly what John is talking about here. Now, just as I'm going to be fair in advocating for the possibility of gematria, so also I have to give you a couple reasons why this might not be true. You say, I think we found it. Well, maybe. Let me give you a couple reasons why maybe not. First, if it's gematria, this is the only time in Revelation it's used. Most of the time, numbers are given symbolic equivalents about which more will come later in just a moment. Okay, So that's a problem. The other problem here is that you do have to fudge with the name Nero Caesar to get it to work. How so? Well, Nero Caesar is, is Latin, and what you'd have to do to get it to add up right is translate that into Greek, and then you'd have to take the Greek and transliterate it into the Hebrew. That's a hop, skip, and a jump. Okay, And so you have to wonder, would ancient Christians have thought about that? Take the Latin translate it to Greek, and then transliterate that into the Hebrew. Would they have thought about that? John's audience here is the churches in Asia Minor. They might not have even really known the Hebrew alphabet, okay? And not only that, but you have a spelling problem, and that is when you do the Hebrew, it does add up. By the way, I did the math myself this week. I, I tried it myself. It really does work. You, unfortunately, though, have to drop the Hebrew letter Yod in order to get the math to work right. So not only do you have to take a hop, skip, and a jump from Latin to Greek to the Hebrew, you also have to spell it slightly wrong. So that mitigates against it being Nero Caesar. And I'll tell you this, this is just kind of fun. David and I, this week in the office, we were both practicing our gematria skills, and we were both racing to see who could get the other person's name to add up to 666. <laughs> and I can tell you that if you take David's name, David T. O'Leary... And if you spell his name David, D-B-D-T O'Leary, 666. So what does that say about <laughs> our associate pastor? Or my spelling, right? But so, so it's the same thing. I have to take the name and, and just kind of mess with it a little bit to get it to work. So that's kind of part of the problem with the gematria of, of the name Nero. Moreover, if it's that obvious... Who figured that out? Well, apparently nobody in the ancient world, because all of the ancient writers, the earliest writers, when you think of like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Clement and Polycarp, some of those guys had direct correspondence with John. None of them seemed to know. So if it was all so obvious, why didn't John's own disciples know that he was talking about Nero Caesar? Apparently they didn't know that. Uh, in fact, in the Reformation era and into the Puritan era, there are over a hundred different guesses of what this name might correspond to mathematically. Apparently, 
from what I've read, Nero Caesar's rather late articulation of the math on gematria. So that all seems to argue against it being a clear reference to Nero Caesar. So what does that leave us with? Well, that leaves us with a symbolic possibility, and this is our third attempt to try to decode the number 666. Okay. What do I mean symbolic? Well, in Revelation, numbers usually take on sort of symbolic connotations rather than precise correspondences. So in Revelation, you've probably already noticed that the number seven is very important. The number seven is the number of perfection or completion, probably drawn from the creation itself. God made the world in six days and he rests on the seventh day, right? And so number, the number seven is a beautiful number in, the revelation, in revelation. It usually symbol, uh, symbolizes perfection and, and God's uh, redemptive work in history and the completion of the things that God is doing. We've already seen the number 24 be something like the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. We've seen the number three uh, used very positively as something of a Trinitarian number, God being described as holy, 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 the threefold holiness of God, or the Lord who was and is and is to come. And so three seems to be sort of a Trinitarian number. 1,000 is 10 cubed, the number of perfection and squareness. And so if, if, if we're taking a symbolic interpretation, then what do we think of 666? Well, what we would have then is a threefold failure to meet up to the perfections of God. Okay, So if 6 consistently falls short of 7, then maybe what John is doing here is he's saying something to the effect that this unholy trinity, remember our context here, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast, is never going to be able to meet up to the promises of God. He's always going to fail. He's always going to disappoint. He's never going to be able to satisfy your heart in the same way that the true God always does. Okay? So we've got Old Testament illusion, we've got gematria, and we've got our symbolic uh, interpretation here. And unfortunately, at this point, I have to let you know that this is the end of the road as far as my understanding of this text. I cannot take you any farther because I don't know. There could be another possibility that I haven't already considered. It could be that one of the things I've considered is right to the exclusion of the other two. It could be that there's some sort of overlapping between all three of those possibilities. The fact of the matter it is, and I'm embarrassed to tell you, I simply do not know and I probably can't answer any further questions at this point. Which leads me to take off then my scholarly cap and put on the cap of the fiery preacher. So here we go then with three applications to this text that I think are fairly obvious. Whatever else we may want to know about 666, here are three things that you must bear in mind, believers. A, have nothing to do with the beast. Have nothing to do with the beast. Now, sometimes people will ask me this question. They'll say, Pastor Matt, I'm afraid that I'm going to accidentally take on the number of his name somehow, perhaps if it has anything to do with technology. Pastor Matt, I just got a new Prius, and there's a pretty fancy microchip and computer system in my car. Have I accidentally taken on the number of the beast? I would probably tell you, no, I don't think you need to worry about it. Okay? 
Pastor Matt, I just got a new iPhone. It's got a really powerful processor in there. Have I accidentally taken on the number of the beast? My answer to you is, is probably no, though I can't tell you that your government isn't snooping on you, but I don't think that's the number of the beast either. What I can tell you is this. Whatever else this text means, stay away from the beast. Be very clear with yourself and in your own mind and in your own heart that you are not pulled in to the beastly machinations of his propaganda. Keep your mind clear for the love of God, for the word of God, for the law of God. Keep your mind free from his diabolical machinations. I think if anything that this text says It is a warning to us as Christian believers that we are not to be pulled into the ideology of this world. Let's remember that the mark is placed upon the head and the hands. What does that mean? Well, that means, believer, that you are to have nothing to do with the way that the dragon would have you to think in your mind. Think like a Christian. Reason like a Christian. Believe like a Christian. Your hand is to be marked not by the evil one, but by the good deeds that you do for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Have nothing to do with the beast. I will simply give you this as a tip. Take this for whatever it's worth. But if the secular governments or the atheistic universities, however much you may trust them, or the unbelieving, greed-mongering corporations have a particular idea and all three of them are pushing it on you, probably a good idea to resist it. They don't have your good in mind. You are to stay away from the thoughts and the ideology and the propaganda and the activities and the beliefs and the doctrines of the evil one. Have nothing to do with the beast. Instead, I would implore you to reject evil, to love the good, to hate the doctrines of demons, to be filled with the Spirit, to stay close to the church, to be nice, loving, kind, gracious, patient, all of that, yes, but hate everything that comes from the mouth of the evil one. You want nothing to do with it. Whatever else this text means, keep your life free from the vile breath of the dragon. We good on that? Second application. Improve your baptism now i didn't make those words up improve your baptism that's puritan talk there okay when i say improve your baptism that does not mean make it better okay when the puritans spoke of improving your baptism what they meant by that is apply it claim it use it Why do I say improve your baptism? Well, first, we have a baptism today. I'm kind of excited about that in the second service. I wish you were there. It's going to be good. But your baptism is a seal upon you in some sense, right? It's not a visible mark. Nobody can look at you and see the water. It's dried up long ago. It's evaporated. But when you were baptized, Christian believer, you need to know this. A name was placed upon you. Which name was placed upon you? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And inasmuch as the number 666 is the demarcation of the name or the number of the beast, you don't have room for another name. Okay, You're already marked. You are already named. You've already been sealed with a name. 
And that sealing took place on the day of your baptism. Now, you may not remember your baptism. That's okay. It still happened. Okay? You may not be able to re- recall your baptism, but other people told you it's true. It is true. Now improve it. Apply it. Uh, again, not improve it in the sense of making it better, but claim it. Let me give you three ways to claim your baptism. First, whenever you are tempted. Okay? Whenever you are tempted, Christian believer, you are to improve your baptism by claiming the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that is placed upon you. This is largely key to resisting temptation in the life of faith. Uh, We will not sin. Of course, we will sin. We'll fall into it. But not willingly because we're going to fight it. We're going to fight it. We're going to resist it. We're going to hate it. And the reason we're going to do all those things is because we already belong to the Lord. Trust me, this is a strong way to resist temptation when it comes upon you. Claim your baptism. Tell the evil one that you cannot participate in that because you already belong to the one who saved you and the one who saved you is good and he's kind and he's gracious and loving. So whenever temptation fills your heart, whether it's lust or greed or hatred or resentment, improve your baptism and claim the name that it was placed upon you on the day of your baptism, right? Claim also your baptism when you are fearful, whenever you are afraid of death. And this happens to me all the time, just like it happens to you. Whenever you're filled with anxiety, whenever your life is filled with worry, whenever you're beset by fear, improve your baptism and claim the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You already have it. You are sealed indelibly with the love of God. Okay? Improve your baptism when you feel guilty, when the evil one reminds you of your guilt then you remind him of your baptism. Point back to the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for you and who loves you. Okay? We may not know exactly what this number 666 means, but we do know what baptism means. It means that we belong to the one who loves us enough to save our soul with his own blood. Amen? And then third, I just want to remind you this by way of application, of the impossibility of dual markings. You can't have them both. It's one or the other. This is not a both-and situation. Okay, sometimes in life, you get an either-or. Sometimes in life, you get a both-and. This is an either-or. Now, you'll, you'll appeal to me, and trust me, I hear you, I hear you, in verse 17, that it's scary. Look at it. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. Does that concern you? It concerns me. It terrifies me, as a matter of fact. But you you do know that you cannot be marked by both. It's either the seal or the mark. And there will be, perhaps at some point in your life, a very strong temptation in which you will say to yourself, isn't it possible that I could just have both? just to escape any difficulty that may come upon me because I'm a Christian? Isn't it possible that maybe I could even bow down to Baal, that 90-foot idol statue of Nebuchadnezzar or whatever else the devil proposes? I could physically bow down to it, but in my heart, in my heart, I would be saying that I really love the true and living God. Be careful that you reason like that. Because there may be a strong temptation for you to compromise and to say to yourself, I will only physically and outwardly and overtly take on the mark of the beast while inwardly I claim the name of Christ. I want to tell you that 
This is a situation in which it is impossible to have both marks. You can't. You cannot. You say, well, well then I'm going to fall prey to the difficulties of verse 17. So be it. That's what we read in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. It's exactly why Daniel 3 is in your Bible. To remind you simply of this. That no matter who else is falling down before that golden statue, okay, whether they be the persons of power or influence in society, you cannot. And no matter how much they play their instruments of so-called worldly joy, as they do in Daniel chapter 3, you are not to sing along. And even if that should cost you that you be thrown into the fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it will be there in the fiery furnace that you will find yourself most intimately and gladly in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we remember what happens when they're thrown in the fiery furnace, right? There is a fourth. And the fourth, they say, looks like a son of the gods. And in fact, it is the son of of the only true and living God. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name.